You're listening to Conversations in Atlantic Theory, a podcast dedicated to books and ideas generated from and about the Atlantic world. In collaboration with the Journal of French and Francophone Philosophy, these conversations explore the cultural, political, and philosophical traditions of the Atlantic world, ranging from European critical theory to the Black Atlantic to sites of indigenous resistance and self-articulation as well as the complex geography of thinking between traditions, inside traditions, and from positions of insurgency, critique, and counter-narrative. Today's discussion is with Dr. Tina Post, an assistant professor of English and Theater and Performance at the University of Chicago. Her recent first monograph, Deadpan, The Aesthetics of Black Inexpression, is the first book in NYU Press's new Minoritarian Aesthetic series. Her scholarly articles have appeared in Modern Drama, The Drama Review, International Review of African American Art, and the edited collection of Race and Performance After Repetition. Dr. Post's creative work can be found in Imagine Theaters, Stone Canoe, and The Appendix. In today's discussion, we discuss Deadpan, where Dr. Post reveals that the performance of purposeful withholding is a critical tool in the work of Black culture makers intervening in the persistent framing of African-American aesthetics as colorful, loud, humorous, and excessive. So we're here today with Dr. Tina Post. Thank you for joining us and making the time um, to discuss your book. And before we get into it, um, we always do the spiel and we ask you about the origins of the project. So a sort of invitation to narrate us into the project, how you came to it, what sort of concerns, personal, ethical, and philosophical drew you to the questions in deadpan. Great. Um, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here and to talk about this book. Um, I came to this book in kind of a roundabout way. So I had done an MFA in creative writing before I did my PhD in African-American studies. And I was working on a series of essays around topics of race and violence and uh, racial performativity, although I didn't yet know that that was my keyword at the time. And in uh, speaking to some faculty at the time, I was living in upstate New York and had connected with uh, a professor at Cornell named uh, Dr. Aaron Sachs, who is a historian. And um, we were talking about narrative history. And I was really worried that I just, um, in working with these historical black figures, I, was, uh, I, I decided that the way I wanted to think about those themes was through um, these figures of 20th century heavyweight boxers. And, um, and I was worried, I, you know, I didn't know enough about the right way to do history to do right by my historical figures. And, um, uh, you know, uh, Dr. Sachs was like, well, you know, this is, it's, it's a great project and um, you could, you could look into this more at a PhD program, but I think you should look at American studies. Um, and I did. And thank goodness, because as it turns out, I'm not really a historian, spoiler alert, but, <laughs> but I am a performance studies scholar, um, which I discovered once I started uh, my PhD program. And already I knew that the kinds of boxers that I was gravitating towards 
um, you know, everyone loves Jack Johnson. Everyone loves Ali. I do too, but I was most fascinated by um, Sonny Liston and George Foreman in the seventies, who was not a happy girl guy. And, um, and Joe Lewis and these guys have really, a very minimal, effective performance. And from there, the project bloomed into what it is now. Oh, wow. That I, I would have never guessed <laughs> from boxing. And then it's, I really do like how um, you start off the book with this image. And I wish people could see. And it's the image of like, how are you feeling? And, <laughs> and then it's just Rich Homie Kwan that he's in the caption says some type of way. And I'm like, that's that's pretty uh, perfect. And it's dead on. Um, but can you talk a little bit about that? And also how you define deadpan? Because I think that was really important for me in understanding um really in understanding the concepts <laughs> that you put forward, but how do you define deadpan um, and the way that you talk about it? Great. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll maybe take a slightly roundabout way back to your first question, but um, deadpan's etymology is seemingly from a vaudeville term, although it appears in American sports pages earlier than I have found it uh, in regards to theater. Um, but it, it literally means dead face. So pan was a uh, slang for face. It's probably where pancake makeup comes from, in fact. Um, so it, it means dead face. And uh, so people often associate deadpan more with comedic valences. And it certainly does appear there. Uh, but it has as a mode of um, visuality a much broader um, circuit for lack of a better term, maybe. And um, and it's really that broader uh, visual currency that I'm most interested in. Um, so I think about it in the book as a kind of a gesture more than an expression, partly because it is an inexpressive expression. So something about calling it an expression seems a little strange. But um, I also really like the way that... Um, theorizations around around gesture rather point to the way um, the gesture is both a kind of culturally encoded phenomenon that we inherit and also can be uh, individually mobilized within certain circumstances. And so uh, it's a gesture of the face where we usually locate expression, but I do think about it as a kind of a gesture. Um, your first question, what was your first question again? <laughs> I forgot. Oh, it's the how you define deadpan. And also it was about the how you, why you decided to start off with the, the rich homie Kwan image. Oh, of right, right. Yeah. And also yeah. Thinking um, about this, just another thing I thought of in terms of you, we, yeah, when, you, when we hear deadpan, you talk about the face, but you also put emphasis on the body which I thought was another way of thinking about deadpan. Um, yeah. Yeah, great. So over the course of the book, it's true. I sort of start with uh, what felt to me like the clearest expressions of black deadpan, where there's a, a black visage uh, that is inexpressive. And then as the book goes, goes on, I move um, into registers of, deadpan gesture that um, that are fuller embodiments that maybe 
depend on the face, but maybe don't depend on the face or maybe upset the face entirely through the back of a head, through an empty hood. Um, and then by the end of the book, we've left blackness behind as well, um, at least in a literal sense. Um, uh, but I started with Rotomi Kwan because, uh, as you say, it felt like that image really encapsulates something. And I tend to have a fairly, um, uh, yeah, for lack of a better term, empiricist model, which is to say that I I assemble the case studies that intuitively feel right and then work my way up into theorization from there instead of down the other way. And um, that means that I have this really eclectic bunch of objects and some of them I feel like read easily to other people is the thing I mean. And some of them, it takes a little bit more explaining and hopefully the explaining that I end up doing is compelling, but, um, but yeah, the rich homie Kwan one, I was like, that's it right there. There's interplay between whiteness and blackness. There's um, uh, interplay between uh, obvious states of emotion and less obvious states of emotion um, there's play between photographic verisimilitude and the sorts of assumptions that we might make or not make out of that. Um, so yeah, I really love it. It seems like such a simple image at the, at the outset, but it, it really encapsulates quite a lot, I think. And then just, you know, thinking about the song, he mentions a bunch of reasons, obviously, <laughs> but um, it's, uh, yeah, I agree. It, he felt a type of way about a lot of things, but like you said, it's like that one face kind of, um, it says a lot. <laughs> um, and then I think the other thing I was thinking about was how, and you spoke a little bit about this, if you could say some more, how deadpan is a part of the matrix of ways black people have marshaled inscrutability as a technique for surviving oppression. And, it's um, that that's very interesting to think of as a theory in regards to it. The faces may seem like it's apathy or um, when we think of faces, it's like that she has a mean face. But what if we thought about it in terms of that's a mode of survival? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's um, it has cousins with other uh, more widely recognized modes of survival. So um, there's a lot of theorization around signifying. There's theorization around assemblance, which is um, Darlene Clark Hines' term for um, a method of uh, appearing to self-reveal when really holding back. And she theorized it in, um, in concert with um, sexual histories and sexual violence, but certainly um, that way of appearing to be generous with selfhood while while reserving something back mm -hmm. is, I think, yeah. a, a really important. Um, Shane Vogel has done beautiful theorization around what he calls impersona in the case of Lena Horn. So there are, um, yeah, I think a, a proliferation of examples of ways that um, Black people deal with the um, inevitable difficulty of visuality and uh, races, visual regimes. Um, yeah, I don't know if that answers yeah. your question fully. Yeah. <laughs> no, it, it does. And I, I'm also curious, so while you were working on this project, what was the process of like picking out these images? Because you've picked out some really great images and you put those in the book, but how did you decide on which ones to include? 
Um, did you find things that surprised you? I'm, I'm curious about that process. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, let me think. Um, a little bit, I think that uh, some of the images I knew all along just contained something for me or were deeply compelling to me. Um, but as I assembled the, it's a five chapter book. And as I assembled that um, archive and this, it's my book is different from my dissertation, but it began there. And the moment of sort of delimiting what the chapters might be that that thought process started with my dissertation prospectus. Um, and as I tell my graduate students, sometimes this could have been five entirely different chapters. Right? I could have like picked one about hip hop and another one about they're just so I feel like this mode of performance um, really suffuses black life. And, um, and so in some ways, it was always going to be a little arbitrary, maybe what the chapters ended up being. But that said, I did feel like I could craft um, an arc or some kind of uh, narrative through the chapters that would bring people to different places. And that was important that I could that I could sort of take a tour of modes of black life. Um, and um, actually, the first the first and third chapters, which I'll say a little bit more about in a second, came uh, last. Uh, the um, but I did know that I wanted to, the first chapter always opened with something that had to do with, um, more literal portraiture, mm -hmm. but the chapter that existed in the dissertation was a, a much different kind of survey of images. There was more Gordon Parks and, um, different FSA photographs and, um, yeah, just, it was a different chapter, um, uh, but I decided eventually that what what I really wanted to talk about there was the was the regime of visuality in some ways, and and I and to in order to dig into that, it required a different set of images than I had originally um, envisioned, including um, the one that's been the same for longest is minimalism and the aesthetics of Black Threat, which um, I, I landed on early. It was um, important and informative to me. And, I, and in that case, um, I knew all along that uh, there was a phenomenon that I could read in histories of minimalism where these the object hoods of minimalist art were being described in ways that were deeply familiar to me as uh, ways that Blackness becomes um, narrated or, or comes into a discursive uh, way of being. Um, and I could recognize too that other artists um, were playing with that, were nuancing it and, and that someone like, uh, at least to my mind, I don't know if all the artists would agree, uh, but I, to my mind, the, the kind of looming that exists in certain objects I can say that for me, some of Martin Purrier's objects loom, but they refuse to threaten. They're so beautiful, right? Mm -hmm. Or that David Hammond's objects maybe are a little threatening, but to who and why? And so, um, so yeah, th that chapter stayed the same for longest. 
Mm-hmm. And speaking of that chapter, um, I really enjoyed that chapter. <laughs> um, I was really okay. curious about the Adrian Piper story. And if you could tell us a little more, um, you you introduced the chapter in a way where I didn't expect us to go that way. I was like, oh, wait, what? Like, <laughs> So I'm just going to say a little in the sense that you, my understanding was you asked her if she could, if you could include some of her pictures in your book and she said that um she doesn't she does not want her work to belong in racially segregated um you know pieces which i was like oh wow that that i've you know it's uh, it was interesting comment so can you tell us a little bit about that but you tie it in a very interesting way in that her refusal for her images um in what she would you know, call racially segregated work is like a notion of withholding to show up instead of showing up to withhold. And I'm I'm still processing these two like phrases. Um, so yeah, can you tell us a little more on that? Sure. Um, sh- well, uh, the first most deadpan, I would say, is uh, an instance of the latter, which is. Um, um, showing up to withhold. So there's some combination of high visibility and something that's missing or stripped away or um, that you might expect to be there, want to be there, isn't present or available to you. Um, That phrase comes from a Lauren Berlant essay on uh, the Black performance artist, Pope L. Um, And when I read that phrase, it felt like, ah, this is, yes, I think that's right. I think that's right. and so uh, through the book, I've, you know, once or twice evoked that as a description of what's happening uh, or the, as the beginning of my theorization of what's happening in these deadpanned um, instances that I identify through the book. And I do think that some of Adrian Piper's works that I had hoped to include, um, most of which are now older, um, these include things like um, uh, her uh, untitled performance at Maxis, Kansas City, and uh, her mythic being performances, which are from the 70s. Um, I think that they are instances, they read to me as instances of a, of a deadpan aesthetic where uh, there is a body that is apparent and it is apparent uh, also in its withholding of something or its refusal of something or its um, complicated relation, I'll say. Um, and yeah, in, I, in, you know, Adrienne Piper has now had a long and complicated career. She has changed or, um, nuanced her views in ways that, um, maybe were unexpected earlier in her career. I'll say to my mind, I'm trying to be very generous here, but I, I find them somewhat disappointing. Um, and in, and I think for some people, and this is what's implicit in that, uh, phrase, um, withholding in order to show up, um, uh, you know, I, Yuri McMillan in his fabulous book, uh, Embodied Avatars discusses her withdrawal from, um, uh, a show as, um, perhaps being a little, um, what's the word I want to say? Like it's a maneuver. It's it's it that denial mm. um, raises her visibility, elevates her. Um, it creates more discourse around her production than than peers in the same exhibition, right? right. Um, it's that's a it's a 
dark, complicated, but perhaps not an accurate view of, of things. Um, I, you know, I, which is not to say that it isn't also a, a, a held belief. If it is a deeply held belief, it feels to me uh, as a, an evolution or devolution in her position. Um, I, I can't say with authority which one, and I think that's probably highly individual um, for all of us to interpret. But it, it did feel um, um, complex to me, in part because I actually don't think that this book is a segregated work. Um, but that, um, you know, ultimately, I have to respect that decision. It is her artwork, um, and I, I point people to where they can find it on the internet. Um, and ultimately they can, they can interpret, um, for themselves, but yeah. So, and that's what I have to resort to, um, just so to get a better understanding of the descriptions and yeah, it was, I was very surprised to see that, um, the racially segregated work, but in, um, in other news, <laughs> I'm always curious right. to see how um, Sylvia Winter shows up in different places and how her theories are used. And I'm still um, reading on her, and so I don't have a vast, <laughs> um, I guess, comprehend. For me, she's not the easiest person to understand, but once you do, it clicks, and it's like, oh, wow, <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> and so when yeah, you mentioned yeah. um, Winter's deciphering practice, I was very curious to know more, and how essentially the, the seeking to decipher process of rhetorical mystification does. So really focusing on the action and the process as opposed to the meaning. And this seems to be like a recurring theme throughout the book of what something does as opposed to how we just interpret, okay, so this is what this visual means. Um, So can you tell us how you tie the deciphering practice to your argument um, of like the Black aesthetic deadpan? Yeah, great. Um, So I'll say... Uh, maybe I'll tie this in also with another touchstone through the book, which is Edward Glissant, both of whom are Caribbean thinkers. Mm-hmm. Um, and my way into Sylvia Winter was through Jose Esteban Munoz, who also talks about using um, a deciphering practice in one of his books. It's either Cruising Utopia or Disidentifications. I can't remember off the top of my head which. Um, but uh, I will say that I, like many minoritarian performance scholars, am a child of House Munoz. And um, so, and I think uh, Munoz very clearly claims winter in this way as a, mm-hmm. as a foremother. And um, so I acknowledge that path as well. Um, but it's a path that's very consonant with what performance studies orientations do in general, which is which is to think about how something is working uh, as um, as a live action, as a performative gesture, as something that um, that um, yeah, just as with theater or, or music or dance, was like you know, not just um, what does that mean, but what what is happening and how is that working and how is it working on me and how is it working on you and uh, to think about our embodied positionality in regards to all these things. So um, the reason that I think that uh, that what is happening is also tied to Glissant um, is that part of my desire to stay with 
what's happening and not what it means is with these inexpressive historical figures, especially it's, it felt like an act of conjecture sometimes to say what it meant, what someone felt, what their intention was when I can't in fact know, I can't say for sure what they, um, what they wanted me to get out of that performance, but I can read the performative nexus of that body, that expression, that setting, that historical moment, all these things together that clue in for me the how of it that still lets me leave the historical figure opaque, which is um, what Glissant argues for in the Poetics of Relation. And Glissant is also, um, I think, deeply ethical or, or um, ethically consonant with what I, uh, what I want my ethics to be around um, insisting that that opacity isn't in itself a refusal of relation. It's a complication of relation, but it's not a refusal of it. And would you tie this into when you talk about I don't want to get this term wrong, evidentiary subjects and how, um, and I think that was when, that was, I think it was in chapter two, when you're talking about the W.E.B. Dubois um, exhibition that he held in Paris and he had these uh, photographs, the 363 photographs, and they're usually meant or they're interpreted as catching these, um, catching Negroes in their natural state. Right. And that's how it's. um, But that assumption is like what you're kind of pushing back against. And we're turning like these people and these pictures into evidence. Um, And I'm 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 curious about knowing just a little bit more about those two words. But it is true that when we see these images, we're automatically assuming that we first of all that you're that we're just catching them like off guard <laughs> when actually that could be a performance um, especially in certain areas when your body is trained to already act um, so that that was an, uh, that was one thing that definitely stood out to me um, but also is that opacity can you link it to like the evidentiary subject yeah sure so um so yeah, in it's um, chapter one that talks the most about um, this evidentiary looking, and uh, as you say, I look at that in a couple of places. One is um, the FSA archives that that were documentary photographers who, in the '30s, sponsored by um, the government in a tremendous. Uh, program, but they were dispatched around the country to sort of document life and to, to keep people employed. And also, um, what a huge, just a tremendous, uh, treasure trove of documentation. This is on all, on all fronts and sometimes complicated, uh, documentation, but documentation nevertheless. Um, and, uh, but yeah, we tend to, um, look at those photographs as though they're telling us something true and not um and not true-ish or contingently true or occasionally true or or something like this which um which many encounters are sort of maybe contingently true um 
And uh, I also talk about Du Bois's um, Types of American Negroes exhibit that he took to Paris, um, the Paris Exposition of the turn of the century. Mm -hmm. Um, And in this, he presents these um, portraits of um, sort of portraits of respectability that contain uh, a subject's name, something of their physical description, something of their personality. Um, and it's used as evidence to yeah, mount, mount claims for Black worth. Mm. But the irony of it to me is that it's the same kind of format as eugenicist pictures, which are also forms of evidentiary looking. And the um, the poignant part of it for me, the reason that I think uh, it it bears noticing um, and thinking about how these things are working, um, is uh, not not only or not merely the fact that um, that there's this evidentiary looking in common, but that that is that to me is the thing that undergirds uh, the performance of respectability and its reliance on visuality in the first place. And so what, what matters I go on to argue is that um, for the black subject who, who can't help but enter modernity as a, as a specimen, they always, that's how we entered modernity and it's hard for us to still shake that in many ways. Um, But uh, that was the opportunity for black subjects to perform a simultaneous position of specimen and scientist that they could prove through their own self uh, performance, their own mounting of evidence that they could also perform. uh, Yeah. Evidentiary looking on, on themselves and on one another. So therefore doubly qualified for modernity. Um, But yeah, the thing that I want to draw attention to isn't, again, isn't the the meaning of it. Oh, that's respectable. It's the process of how we get there. And isn't that process kind of troubling? (laughs) I don't know how we get up from under it exactly. But I I do at least want to highlight that that is still what we're doing when we we try to, um, uh, yeah, mount that evidence ourselves. That is, um, that's very true, the process, and this this relates to conversations of, like, respectability politics, but I'm curious to know when, you, well, actually, let's, let me start off with this question. Do you show these pictures um, in, in class, and, like, what are the conversations around, um, you know, when you pose this question? Um... That's a good question. I, you know, I don't, I haven't shown the Du Bois pictures in class. Um, I have shown the Augustine stereotypes mm-hmm. um, generally in reading and not just projected up mm-hmm. on on the um, board. Um, it's funny, my teaching is all over the place. So I teach <laughs> for uh, creative writing, for theater and performance studies, um, some English classes that tend to be cross-listed with theater and performance studies. I teach some dance. So I've never actually taught the class that is deadpan. Um, I <laughs> teach another class called Black Quietude, where some of the um, uh, softer modes of an expression, I'll say the more interior modes of an expression are, are discussed. Um, 
but yeah, it's funny. I haven't, I, I have, I haven't taught this class. Well, let so, us know because um, it, it would be really nice to see, you know, the the conversations that come around and what we've internalized, and because that's what will be repeated when you see these pictures. And how would we change the process of to look at yeah. them different? Um, and also, well, since you mentioned, <laughs> you know, the class on uh, quietude, how do you think you can link that interiority with deadpan? Like there, there seems to be some mode, like some threads that connect. Yeah, great. Um, so what I'll say uh, to back up maybe to the microscope a little bit uh, is that in this book, I propose deadpan as uh, the word that we can use to describe the nexus of um, uh, or the place where black embodiment, black inexpressive embodiment meets narratives of black and expressive embodiment, um, so which is, which is a huge field of uh, instances, right? Some of them are intentionally performed. Some of them are accidentally performed. Some of them are obviously um intention filled and others of them are not. Um, some of them are intended by the performer. Some of them are overwritten by audience. So it's a, it's a broad field, but I think within that broad field, um, some performances of deadpan are, have a harder edge and some of them are kind of softer. And, uh, the way that I, um, describe this to students, sometimes this did come up in black quietude is if you think about that uh, moment where, uh, Beyonce had uh, released Lemonade and Solange had her um, album. I forget which one it was that was sort of right at the same time. Um, but Beyonce's, the the images around um, Lemonade, and I'm thinking in particular of her with a uh, black hat and a black dress and those chains and the two men behind her, those feel very deadpan in a harder edged way. Whereas Solange's performances are also fairly inexpressive, at least facially, they're very quiet. Um, mm. But they feel uh, much more interior, uh, much softer. Um, they, uh, it's a different kind of black inexpressiveness to me. Um, and this uh, disparity is part of what led me to the third chapter, where I propose an opacity gradient. Um, and that came about because so much of our discourse in black studies, for good reason, um, recognizes these two kind of poles. On the one hand, the black body can be fugitive. On the other hand, it can be opaque. Uh, but there's a lot that happens in between there, right? And so um, in this chapter, I try to take some time to parse out what happens in the space between a fugitivity or what I think um, I, I identify in some performances as transparency, not in this case, in the way that Glissant uses transparency, which for him means something more like self-evident, but I mean something more like, nope, people are looking right through her. <laughs> and so um, so uh, this gradient between transparency on the one hand to a, a really dense kind of opaque mm -hmm. presence on the other. Um, and it, between those, I, I find some other um, stops, such as sheerness or um, obscurity, uh, other other moments, uh, other places in that spectrum that I'd like to linger a little bit more. We can go in, into just a little deeper in um, that chapter where you're talking about the that like the gradient of 
and how between that gradient, there's sheerness, obscurity, and awayness. And it's, um, I really like how you're kind of expanding that. And you started off from this point of, um, well, you know, it's always looking at some mixed Black people as, oh, we can't identify them, like they exist on a spectrum. Um, there's like this unknowability. But then you dive into deeper, you're like, well, there's there's this for all Black people, <laughs> regardless of the skin color, but it, it's a gradient. And can you talk a little about the sheerness, obscurity, and awareness? But yeah, because it does something different. I've never studied plays formally, but from the examples that you've shown, we process things differently when we see something that's glass, that's something you can see through, like you were saying, or, and then we use that same visual mechanics on a person (laughs) when you can also see through this person, like really paying attention to how the stage is, um, how the stage is set and versus when something, when you can't see through something, like, but you're, you're noticing a difference, this, you're, you're making a distinction between opacity and transparency, which is, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's very interesting to know. Thanks. Um, so yeah, as with all things I, I mentioned earlier, I, I tend to see best up from objects, um, and, uh, and so, yeah, I, I was working, um, initially with this, uh, the figure of Cheryl Sutton, who, um, many people have not heard of and everyone should, she was a tremendous performer and, um, worked in, um, a number of plays with, um, Robert Wilson and was always cast in the same kind of figure who is, for him, kind of an archetypal figure. Um, But what was important about her in particular was the ways that she could um, produce this embodiment that, yeah, people felt like they could sort of see through or they could be looking at her and forget that she was there kind of. And, um, you know, I, I have not had the good fortune to see her perform myself, but it's it was actually amazing how sort of uh, repetitive these descriptions were of of the the sort of magic of watching her pour water so slowly or glide across the stage or or something. Um, uh, this is particularly in the stage performances. There is a recording which I have watched of uh, one uh, performance, Deaf and Glance, where um, she feels differently present for me because it is a, a play um, or as the play entered film, it became um for me, a very dread-filled uh, kind of occasion. Um, this the the narrative within this um, uh, and the aesthetics within this one film. But regardless, um, yeah, I was very intrigued by um, these descriptions of like you could you could just watch her sit there and just sort of see through and beyond her to the sea. <laughs> Which wow, that's that's amazing. Um, uh, and so. Um, beginning from this, and I do feel like there are ways um, that Black people know, often Black women know, of being taken for granted, some of which feel terrible and some of which feel okay. But there are ways, I think, that we all recognize moments of being um, um, either invisible Somehow I'm here, but you don't see me. Or on the other hand, um, invisible in a way that's very like like a chair. Like I'm here and you're sitting on me, right? Mm-hmm. These are 
these are effective positions that we know um, and to be able to then try through artwork to identify the aesthetic workings that um, savvy black practitioners mobilize and wield through their artworks um, became the project. So um, oh, Lorna Simpson is my example for awayness. Um, I talk about Titus Kafar's artworks for obscurity, um, a couple of different artists um, for um, sheerness, um, uh, but in particular, this um, artist, Alana Lynch, who does she works with um, these um, Scooby sheets that's, that are produced in kombucha and does these sort of, um, to me, they're, they're like a brownish skin um, mm. and she makes them into gloves and sheets. And I just, that work is um, yeah, visually arresting for me. So that's, that's that. <laughs> and um, another, and that reminds me of when you were talking about um was it any second skin and the use of like texture in these artworks? But it's something that I spent a lot of time laughing because <laughs> it, it was quite fun was um, the figure figure 4.6 and it's uh, Glenn Ligon's self-portrait, exaggerating my black features. I really enjoyed this because it. Um, I can't, I, I won't lie to you. I fell victim to this. You know, it's, I looked at it. I'm glad I looked at it before reading your last paragraph on the, on the previous page. But I remember when I first scrolled through it, I was like, oh, that's an interesting picture. And then I looked at the caption and my mind did this thing where it's looking for it. But then obviously, you know, you, you talk about this in the chapter using the, um, well, no, that was in the next chapter about the ship. But <laughs> this was really, um, this was one of those images that once again spoke to how your mind processes something when you're looking at it versus the, the reality um, of what it is. So how did you find this one? And I guess this is, um, what, what made you include it if I'm missing something in terms of... <laughs> Yeah, great. Um, so yeah, Glenn Ligon is, um, I, I talk about his artworks a couple times in this chapter um, because um, I think about uh, monochromatic artworks as, um, and this is using the theorization of this woman, um, Angeline Morrison, who talks about the inscrutability of the mixed race subject as being kind of like the monochrome where um, it's either the monochrome is um either you sort of like search around for like the tiny bit of distinction and color or something that would mean that there's something there or you, um, you dismiss it as there's nothing there. And so she talks about in this article, uh, the, um, the kind of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, scrutiny of the mixed race subject as analogous to the kind of scrutiny that happens in, um, in the monochrome. And what I love about some of Ligon's other works is that they're um, monochromatic works, but they are, it's, they insist, even though they're dark black, that there mm -hmm. is um, still texture there. There's still um, content there. There's mm -hmm. still, uh, you can't dismiss it as nothing. Um, and you still are trying to make out what exactly it is. Um, and so um, it, it feels to me more like what um, the scholar Daphne Brooks referred to as mm -hmm. a, um, 
as this sort of spectacular opacity. Uh, and, um, and yeah, at the end of this chapter, I, which is about um, uh, the ways that excess apparent excess can tip into the sort of evacuation of, of a deadpan aesthetic. Um, I close it with this um, double paneled artwork by Ligon um, that is again, a riff on Adrian Piper. So Adrian Piper first drew a self portrait emphasizing my Negroid features was the title of that. Um, and Piper is a fair skinned black woman Um and was often, she had stories of being mistaken for white. People would say racist things around her when she first got into, I can't remember if it was college or art school, but she was at a fancy function and some administrator said, my dear, you're no more black than I am or something like this, dismissive of her of her mm-hmm. own blackness. So at one point in her career, she drew this self-portrait emphasizing my Negroid features and so Ligon then, in his own tongue-in-cheek way, produces uh, both self-portrait exaggerating my black features and self-portrait exaggerating my white features, which are the same portrait. Um, and so, yeah, the um, the ways that it highlights the kinds of scrutiny that racialized looking can um, beg for and the potential that people of any coloration have in the best of moments. I'm not saying it's easier that it always happens, but the, the, um, the potential to sort of evacuate the meaning there or to um, nudge, <laughs> nudge the viewer in ways that are, um, that are productive complications, I think. I think that's a good word to put. It's a good way to put it. Um, but I, uh, yeah, I definitely, I, I definitely enjoyed that chapter. But how you closed it, it was very. Um, you made your point. It was case in point. Thank you. <laughs> so the other thing um, we tend to ask people who come on: when you were writing this book, did you have an imagined reader in mind? Um, do you think this book was for? those who are just in, like your students in performance studies or was it more so because you did write it in a way though that every, anyone and everyone can read this so it's not very like scholarly oh, jargon so I, I appreciate that especially since performance studies is not my field but it definitely made it like oh okay I can understand <laughs> and I can maybe draw connections um so yeah Thank you. That that means a lot to hear. Um, and it, yeah, I did. I do want lots of people to be able to get something out of this book. I don't really consider um, this part of my overall portfolio necessarily like the public facing part of it. But um, but I am really um, happy if it does have a, a public life um, or or at least an expanded broader life. Um, you know, in, in creative writing, there's a saying about how you you know people write the book that they want to read and, mm-hmm. and can't find. And I think um, I um, I hope another thing that comes through the book is that my overall orientation is not um, like against the things I'm mad at, but toward the things that I love or am compelled by. But there there are some things that I um, that I hope are corrective. And one of those things is the sense that 
um, uh, because so much of Black aesthetics is considered to be in its true form, loud and joyful and like raucous and witty and all these things that are beautiful things. But, um, but because that's the only true forms of Black expression, that any other kind of expression just becomes sociology, mm-hmm. just becomes like what's, what's in the way of, of the real, um, you know, comedic prowess, natural expressivity that is the true blackness right and so Mm -hmm. I wanted to be able to reclaim a register of aesthetic production for blackness um and so I hope that the book does that um I I think I also wanted to give us give the field better ways of um or like more room to maneuver between um fugitivity and opacity so i hope the book does that um yeah i'm sure there's more but those those were those are maybe the first two things that come to mind about like why why this why this book and it's because i you know i wanted um yeah i wanted to read about uh, the um quieter, more contemplative, more mysterious, more obscuring forms of blackness in a way that um, that took still its artistic merit seriously. And yeah. I do like that um, expanding how we the expanding the discourse of black quietness because that's just um, I, I enjoy that part in in regards to the things that, may not point, may not be very loud. You know, like we, we can see the loud, we can see the, but what are the different ways of pay attention, paying attention to the silences? And um, what do those silent, how do those silences work? And I think that's how I can place your book as opposed to, well, what do they mean? But well, how do they work? <laughs> and, you know, looking at the action and the process is, um, yeah, I think that can, it helps someone like me. I'll say that at this point, as I'm putting together all the books I need to read, <laughs> it helps to see, um, you know, pay attention to the how, the the why, and the what, not just focusing on the why. So, thank you as a grad student. And <laughs> to return the question <laughs> to you, um, how did the process of writing, editing, and wrapping up this book leave you? Did did you wrap up? Did you? Are you still working? with the ideas, um, shifting it into different forms maybe, but. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Uh, and a little bit, um, a little bit TBD. So I think where one of the ways that the intellectual project of it has left me, uh, is thinking about, um, uh, I might, I might next think about, uh, racialized robots, which is, um, a lot of the inexpressive historical figures would be compared to automatons or something like this. And so um, so I'm kind of intrigued by what that means. It's funny because I'm not a person who necessarily enjoys science fiction per se. And that's that's been the one thing that I'm like, huh, now I'm just like reading a lot of science fiction. And that's not necessarily my jam. But um, but I am really interested in, in the racialized figure of the robot, in actual robots that actually had racialized figuration. So um, so that's one place that the, the work might go. Um, but I, yeah, it left me, um, it was like any book, I think, a uh, um, a process of 
of excitements and revelations. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll say uh, the first the first chapter changed a ton because um, in this one conversation with the historian Vincent Brown, um, he was the one who I was describing my process and like where I was in the book and how um, the theorization was at that point sort of just crystallizing because I had, as I said, intuitively amassed a, a, an example, a bunch of things where I'm like the same thing's happening here. And, and then I had to make the account of what that was and, mm-hmm. and how, how it worked. Um, and so when I was saying that I was like reading up, up for my theorization, he said, ah, an empiricist. And I reacted internally. I hope I didn't show it too much with such horror because I, I associate empiricism with the sort of enlightenment project that has left us all destitute. Right. And so, um, but really that was the moment that opened the first chapter up for me. Like, Oh, we all do this. We all do this all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, so that there are those kinds of moments where um, uh, that are, are really important. And, on an individual ethical level and not just as a sort of project of, of um, scholarly endeavor. Um, and then the other thing that isn't to do with any of any of this, but um, I uh, run at University of Chicago, a movement theory reading group where we think a lot about dance and movement. Um, part of my robot chapter is thinking about um, dance forms that, that perform the aestheticized movements of roboticism. Um, So yeah, thinking more with dance and movement is really exciting to me right now. Well, thank you so much, um, Dr. Post. This was, this was a fun book for me. Um, Just it, I enjoyed it. I always enjoy images in a book. I'm kind of like a little bit like an adolescent in that way. Um, When you put in the pictures, you describe them like, Oh, I can see. And then, um, you do put out like resources and links to look at so definitely um i appreciated it but i i I would recommend this book um to those who are interested in the black aesthetic being spoken about in a different way so thank you for joining us and we would love to have you back on i'm a fan of inviting you back on but also understanding that this takes a lot of work to produce Thank you so much. It was really a pleasure and um, and such an honor to speak with you and about this work. So thanks for having me. Thank you. <laughs>